And I would like to suggest that we start quite literally with questions. If you have a question, a specific question, and please direct it to a specific panelist. Um, let us begin with questions and then move to a more general discussion. Um, Fraser, put up your hand, please, and Fraser will pass the uh, microphone to you. But, and, oh, yes, and please do identify yourself. Right, my name is Bob Thompson. Uh, the title of the conference is What's Missing in Response to the Global Financial Crisis? And uh, something that I'd like to ask all three panelists, actually, as opposed to just one of them, would be, uh, I think that one of the things that's missing is the second law of thermodynamics. And I'd like to hear your comments on the impact of the um, looming environmental ecological crisis that uh, is going to cause all kinds of disruptions in addition to the financial crisis, and not just in terms of uh, carbon markets, but uh, beyond that. I'd be well, very could interested. We just hold that a moment. I really did ask whether there are specific questions addressed to specific people we have here, and then let us move to more general issues such as the one that you have just raised. Hi, this is a question for Professor Ocampo. You mentioned uh, that uh, one, of the, one of the items that came within the report was the idea of bringing the WTO into the UN. And uh, I'm just uh, wondering if you could comment a little bit more about the uh, uh, context around which that was discussed. The, the one concern that comes to my mind is, I. I generally think of the WTO as an institution that, uh, international institution that works remarkably well uh, as it is currently. And I think of uh, the UN, and I think many people do as an institution that needs uh, needs perhaps some reform. So um, I don't I don't know if you see a little bit of where my concern is coming from. Perhaps it's misplaced. I don't know what the context of of that uh, discussion around that proposition was. Uh, well, the, um, uh, let me say that uh, 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 bringing the, the WTO into the UN system uh, doesn't mean that it's going to work less well. Uh, it just uh, brings it under, you know, the United Nations, and particularly under our proposal of the Global Coordination Council, uh, will be, uh, you know, is essentially a coordinator of the global system. So it will actually bring the, uh, the WTO into that coordination process. Uh, by the way, uh, the WTO has been participating in, uh, in the, although it's not a, a UN organization, uh, it is the only non-UN organization that is regularly invited to the major mechanism of the, uh, of the heads of the, of the agencies in the UN. Uh, so it, it, in that regard, and actually has been, if I may say, more uh, cooperative than other uh, organizations uh, in that process. Uh, I mean, just one little detail. Uh, uh, the, the head of WTO, for instance, uh, was in the follow-up to Monterrey uh, in Doha. The heads of the Bretton Woods uh, were not. I mean, just to mention that the, actually the current head of WTO, at least, uh, is more committed to a coordination process in the UN. Or, or just look at the, uh, the, now the two reports that the WTO has been producing with ILO on the links between trade and employment, which I think are very useful documents, actually. 
so that uh, I think the current, but th that is a conjunctural issue associated to the current head. Uh, this, there has to be a more structural issue uh, of the way you know, the, the uh, world system is organized. This, uh, in a sense, goes back to the whole idea that uh, Mr. Jomo referred to of the, uh, you know, the, uh, the post-war arrangement in which the ITO was supposed to be one of the major uh, parts of the system, but it was never created by accident. I don't know. I never understood why WTO, when it was created, was not made uh, part of the United Nations system. Yes, this question is uh, also for Professor, for, uh, Professor Ocampo. Oh, yes, my name is John Foster. And uh, just to follow up on your um, summary of the Global Economic Council, this is an idea which in one sense has been around for quite a while, going back to Ramphel and Carlson and the CDO panel, and uh, come again in a fresh form. Uh, on the political side, what indications do you have of uh, possible support for this proposition? No, we, we, we don't have a, a, any, uh, except the, uh, I, I must point out one issue that I, I see very clearly, which is the uh, very, um, I mean, it says the G20 or L21, you know, following John Moore's terminology, uh, has, a, a, in a sense, self-proclaimed itself uh, as that council. Now, it, it, uh, it just happens that the membership is, uh, is a bit arbitrary. Um, I mean, not totally. I mean, you will think of the, uh, you know, the membership of the, uh, I mean, there is not, there, you know, there is no true South African, uh, uh, Sub-Saharan African country. Uh, South Africa, you know, being seen by other Sub-Saharan African countries and not necessarily the uh, representative of the, of the group. Uh, um, the uh, uh, Nigeria, which is uh, among the Sub-Saharan African countries, the largest is excluded. Uh, in, in, you know, in, in Latin America, for instance, the, the question whether Argentina, uh, you know, should be a member or there should be more uh, a representation of other countries of similar or even larger size uh, to Argentina. Uh, anyway, the, the, the very arbitrary nature has already led to this very, uh, to even further ad hoc uh, decisions. So I think the discussion about the membership is something that uh, at the end uh, will be, uh, you, you define it well, could be done uh, actually in that context. Uh, and that it will solve further the problem uh, of you know, truly multilateralizing the, uh, the decisions of whatever governing body the world chooses for itself. This, is not, this has not been quite chosen uh, by the world. Yes, um, Professor Freeman. Could I just add a word to that? Um, I guess I'm skeptical. Uh, of coordination. Cooperation, yes. Coordination that is not necessarily in the best interest of the individual countries is not going to work. That's been my experience sitting on international bodies. Uh, the cases where we did have attempted coordination, which had to do with the uh, fixed exchange rate at the time when they tried to move the various exchange rates and afterwards, just didn't work very well. One of the reasons that the cooperation, and I prefer to use that term, did work very well this last time has been because it was clearly in the interests of every country to basically engage in fiscal stimulus. When I talked about global fiscal stimulus, I didn't think of it as a coordinated, rather it was a cooperative venture where each country really needed to. But if you had countries 
that were doing very well and didn't have to. It didn't make a lot of sense for them to expand and have an overly stimulative situation. So, um, so that's kind of one issue when you talk about these councils. I sort of get a little nervous about them. The other part, though, is size. Uh, having sat on smaller committees and larger international committees, the larger they get, and I appreciate there has to be involvement, because I'm very much in favor of that, but I was on the global, uh, the, uh, what do you call that? the Financial Stability Forum, we called it, which at the time had three from each of the G7 plus four, other countries plus that, but about 45 people around the table. I suspect we're 60 or 70. I've never seen a group of 60 or 70 people work effectively in that sense to actually, it can be an interesting body, but you're gonna be sub-bodies behind it or doing the work. It's, you know, just having them all there does not mean that they're all playing the same role. No, but, but the issue of size, I, you know, if, if I may say, let's say 20, okay, 20. Uh, I mean, we don't need more than probably one, 20. The problem is who the, 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 uh, the country sitting on the table represent, which is the basic problem of the G20, that they don't represent anything by themselves. So that, you know, the rest of the world, you know, and since I'm, a, you know, a citizen of a country that is not represented, I am not represented in the G20, so for me, it will continue to be illegitimate forever. And, and, uh, and, and, and that's the basic problem of the G20. It will, you know, it's born with that problem. I mean, no, no matter, of course, you can have the most powerful countries in together. I mean, there are other problems with the G20, uh, the way it's operating. I still, you know, I mean, we still have to see uh, what is the dynamics of the non-G7. I mean, whether it's going to be uh, to make a dent in the in the way it functions, uh, but particularly the problem of of going from decisions of the G20 or the G7 or whatever G or whatever club of countries uh, you can think of, because these are clubs of countries, uh, to the multilateral decisions. I remember, you know, you know, uh, for instance, the I mean, one very particular discussion, which was the uh, Multilateral Debt Relief Initiative, uh, which was uh, launched by the G7. Uh, you know, it is, uh, you, know, you know, everyone on the basis of merit says, of course, you know, that was a great initiative. But the problem of the non-members of the G7, including the industrial countries that were non-members and had to pay for that, is, it was the question in the IMFC when it, so when it comes to the multilateral body that has to take the concrete decision, is you know why the hell are we being imposed this decision with our our voice? So the, the, this is the problem of going from you know these clubs of countries, the G's, uh, into the multilateral process. So that's why we we, we believe that it would be better to create uh, let's say a legitimate L20. Uh, which would be this uh, this body that uh, you know you can have 20, you don't have to have more. You know, maybe you want to have 22 or 24, whatever. Uh, but the uh, but the, the but the, the the essential point is that it's truly representative. Uh, today it is not representative. It will not be representative so long as many countries of the world have absolutely no voice uh, in in that uh, body. And we would like to take um, three questions. Um, Hello, um, my name is Roy Culpepper. Um, I'd like to ask uh, Chuck a, a question, Chuck Friedman. In his very comprehensive presentation, um, one thing that I found missing, or I'd like him to address, 
is the issue of central bank independence. Uh, surely the crisis tells us that the age of central bank independence has come to an end, that central banks simply have to be more accountable to parliaments and to governments than they have been in the past, and to stop being singularly fixated on inflation targeting the way they have in the past. It's uh, something I, I'd like you to comment on. And the thing I'd like, the question I'd like to direct to Jose Antonio Campo uh, in terms of what's missing is how are we going to prevent uh, uh, the next crisis uh, from happening, which could well be. Uh, the mother of all currency crises, uh, crises the, the meltdown of, of the U.S. dollar. Is, uh, I, I find it quite astonishing how little has been done and uh, has been said about uh, doing something now before it's too late. Thank you. Um, could we have a couple more questions and then we'll have a round of answers, if there are? Yeah, um, my name is Fergus Watt. I'm with uh, a Canadian NGO, the World Federalists, uh, which has uh, helped uh, a little bit to put this meeting on, and we're into uh, some global governance issues. So I want to, uh, and John Foster is a friend, so I'll re-ask John's question, um, uh, which I think was, uh, what uh, does Mr. Ocampo see as, as the political prospects for acceptance of, of uh, um, the, the, the Global Economic Coordination Council and, and uh, um, I mean I, I personally uh, support the proposal and, and I wonder, I think um, it might be helpful if uh, you could expand on your remarks uh, cr critiquing the G20 if you explain to us a little bit about the um, uh, the representation system, the, the constituency system as you call it for the, for the council as well, if you could just take a brief moment to do that as well. We take one more question. Cristina Rojas. Eh. Oh. Okay. Eh. Okay. Eh, me, my question is uh, about uh, calling third world countries innocent victims. I think that one thing that we have learned from this crisis is the opportunity for third world countries to organize and to present alternatives. I talk more in the case of Latin America than I know, but it's also happening in Africa and in Asia. So my question will be how much there is support within the Stiglitz Commission for these proposals that come from third world countries and from Latin America specifically about uh, regional organization, regional uh, currencies, instead of trying to demonize what they are doing at this moment. I think there's one more question over here. Okay. David's bringing the mic. Thank you. Thanks. Hi, uh, Laurel Gasha Ramirez. I'm with the Department of Finance, the Government of Canada, the G7, G20 Secretariat. Um, and I wanted to, to ask Mr. Sunderum, Mr. Sorry, Sunderum, um, if you could speak a bit more about uh, capital account liberalization. Uh, um, Mr. Ocampo had also mentioned that this was one thing that hadn't been mentioned on the, the G20 agenda. If you could speak a bit more just in terms of what, what you would like to see on the G20 agenda in that area. Thank you for the question. Um, shall we begin with... Professor Friedman. 
Um, it will not surprise you, Roy, to hear that I do not believe that this uh, episode throws doubt on central bank independence. Uh, in fact, central banks have behaved, I think, very well in this, by and large, in this uh, episode, bringing the interest rates down very rapidly and uh, being very innovative in terms of the kinds of things they've done. Um, but I'll come back to that in just a second because I would want to say something. I'm in the midst, I will shortly be writing a paper on what is the implication for inflation targeting. And the answer is, uh, first of all, I take issue with your statement about fixated on central on inflation targeting. As everyone who's written on it talks about flexible inflation targeting, which picks up on the cyclical movements. Uh, I sort of look back and read the history a little differently. We had 20 good years, so, the so-called great moderation, albeit with some crisis, no question about that. There were problems, many connected with fixed exchange rates, of course. But nonetheless, those 20 years, uh, we had relatively good growth, especially good growth in the developing economies. And I would suggest that a considerable amount of that uh, is a result of the fact that we did not have an inflationary breakout at any point. If you go back to the whole post-war period, till 2000, every downturn, economic downturn was preceded by an inflationary outburst and a central bank tightening. The difference in the last two is that they are, in a sense, uh, more complex they're not related to central bank tightening because they were not related to inflation target, infl inflation uh, burst out. So I think what if we've learned anything from those 20 years, it is that an independent central bank can contribute importantly to the well-being of the economy. No central banker that I know is what Mervyn King calls inflation nutter, N-U-T-T-E-R. Uh, we're all flexible inflation targeters, and in fact, when circumstances arise, uh, have responded fairly effectively to things like financial ability. There is a very interesting question that I raised just tangentially as to what the role of financial stability should be in monetary policy formulation and conduct. And I think that's a very complex question in terms of whether you would be better off or not trying to use the major tool of monetary policy in that way to try and deal with financial stability. I have some doubts, as I mentioned. But that doesn't mean that we can't have, don't have to deal with financial stability, but that may not be the tool. So no, I, I, we're, we're not on the same wavelength. I just want to say something before I give you the US dollar meltdown on uh, exchange rates, though. You talked about reserve buildup. You also talked about the economic imbalances, but you never drew the link. I don't know what proportion of the reserve buildup is related to countries' concern about having more reserves and therefore not going through another 97, 98, certainly some of it. But a good part of it has been an attempt to prevent an appreciation by those countries that, and I use the term fixated here, are fixated on export-led growth. And in effect, what I would argue is if they were more willing to allow their exchange rates to move upward to appreciate, that we would have at least some element of uh, addressing the question of, financial, of uh, re uh, regional imbalances. Not all of it, because some of it relates to savings and investment. I agree with that. Uh, but in fun, some sense, uh, they would have had less in the way of reserves, and they would have had better situation financially involved. So the two are linked, in my view. Just want to throw that out. Uh, you're passing the response to Jomo? Yeah, I'll go, I'll go yeah. up there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> He's going to be the designated victim. <laughs> uh, because that intervention requires a response. Yeah, allow me to, to revisit the question of central bank independence. Uh, I, I think the, there has been, especially in Europe, uh, on the continent, a great deal of aversion uh, 
to, uh, to, to undertaking fiscal stimulus measures. Uh, uh, I attend the IMFC meetings and, uh, and uh, almost every intervention I've heard since the crisis began from Mr. Trichet is about the inflationary threats and, and, and uh, Axel, um, the, the German, uh, the, 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 sorry? Weber. Weber. Axel Weber uh, makes a similar type of uh, intervention. There is certainly uh, central bank independence coming from there has been has has uh, been very pronounced in terms of, of uh, discouraging a stronger, more robust response. Um, I just mentioned they're not independent, of course, because it's an ECB. They have no role in monetary policy except for one vote. True. So it's True. changed. The, but I take your point there. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and I would say that, that within developing countries, this has also been a, a major constraint. I, I, I do take your, your, your point that in where there has been central bank independence, in other, in other circumstances, especially in the Anglophone world, this has not been a serious constraint, but I, I think we have to take a more global assessment of, of this, this problem. If I may go on to the, go back to the uh, GECC uh, view, at least uh, two, two uh, in, uh, national leaders, uh, uh, Chancellor Angela Merkel, as well as uh, Prime Minister Manmohan Singh, have spoken in favor of uh, some kind of variant on the global economic coordination council idea. Um, and uh, um, I, I do think that it's important to, 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 to recognize uh, that there are a number of earlier discussion, uh, proposals of a similar type as, as uh, Jose Antonio has emphasized. Uh, one important suggestion was made by uh, Kamal Dervish in, when he was uh, Administrator of the UNDP, he made a suggestion for what was called the L27 uh, of uh, leaders of 27 countries, half the size of ECOSOC. Uh, and I would strongly endorse the idea Jose Antonio made about that, that it's not just having half the size, but also ensuring a constituency system which ensures accountability. And this is where I think the UN has a lot to learn from the Bretton Woods institutions in terms of how governance is organized uh, there. Uh, and, and for example, the Canadian ED uh, on, on the IMF, uh, in the, at the IMF, uh, is obliged to speak for the Caribbean countries he represents and so on and so forth. So I think this kind of, of accountability is, uh, arrangement is something which is important. And we do have an inclusive multilateral arrangement for all the flaws of the Bretton Woods institutions. They are an inclusive multilateral institutions. And we have seen how this has been problematic. The G20 has made recommendations, pronouncements on, 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 on changes in governance. Uh, but at the IMFC, with the skewed governance arrangements which we have, uh, this has been resisted very successfully by the smaller European countries, for example, uh, who stand in the way of significant governance reforms in the Bretton Woods institutions. Um, now, I, this is because of the current weights. I think it's very important for us to recognize that the, part of the reason why Euro, Europe is overweighted in the Bretton Woods institutions, particularly in the fund at the outset, was that Europe, right after the war, were basically debtor nations. And the whole idea was to ensure that the, that the IMF, as an international financial cooperative, because that was the spirit of it, would have a balance between the debtors and the creditors. You didn't want to 
did it, otherwise the US would have been would have been the one to be overrepresented, not not the Europeans. But the, the other thing about the Europeans, of course, was that particularly in the case of the UK, the US, uh, the UK, uh, France, and, and and Belgium, and so on and so forth, they were also presiding over. They still had not given up their colonies, and they were had responsibilities for the for the for the empires as well. And this was part of the reason for the weight. And so the current weightage in the Bretton Woods institutions is really quite unjustifiable. But the original spirit of, that's why I, I, I made the plea for the, reviving the original spirit of Bretton Woods if you're going to make some progress in this regard. Uh, lady from, from Ministry of Finance, I, I would simply say that, the, that Article 6 of the Articles of Agreement of, of the IMF is, is very clear about sovereign rights in relation to capital account. Uh, simply upholding that and ensuring that the leadership of the IMF ensures that, that there is very un, unambiguous staff discipline as far as respecting the Articles of Agreement, including the Articles Article 6, uh, would, would overcome the problem. What we have seen, however, is over the last three decades, that, that the leadership of the IMF has actually tacitly encouraged capital account liberalization, and staff have done so, and this has, has contributed to the current situation, the current problems which we have. Finally, I would like to comment, Professor Friedman, when, as Deputy Governor, I, I remember that it was the Bank of Canada which was involved in very important debates in the Americas, in the, in the Western Hemisphere, on the question of dollarization. There was this kind of enthusiasm about dollarization in the, in the late 90s and the beginning of this, of this decade before Argentina blew up. And it was the Bank of Canada which provided some of the most important and robust arguments uh, which, which actually stemmed the tide. Uh, I fear the consequences if the Bank of Canada was had not, I mean, the, 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 Reserve, the, the Reserve Bank had not, had not taken the kind of uh, position it had taken at that time. If I could add just one note, you know, you mentioned the gentleman <laughs> William White at the Bank of International Settlement who put out many, many warnings about the impending crisis, and he was also a former member of the Bank of Canada, a Canadian from the Bank I, of Canada. I do have to add something to that. Bill and I, Bill's a very old and dear friend of mine, and anecdote I always say, Bill's got this big spot on his face as he tells you the world's coming to an end. But uh, he did come back, I remember, from a series of meetings in the late 90s. And he would say, oh, dear, dear me. He said, the, the Japan's going to go down the tube, and the world is going to go with it. He was half right. He was half right. No, the, the BIS has been for 15, 10 to 15 years been arguing there is a problem. And the, you know, their, their solution to the problem, though, I have not yet found persuasive for how to deal with the kinds of problems. But it's not just the BIS. Open up any financial stability review, whether it's of the Bank of Canada or the Bank of England or the Global Financial Stability Review, and they have been talking about the fact that things like the uh, risk premiums are too low, basically that people are underweighting risk, that there are risks of growth of debt and so on. Nobody paid any attention. That raises a very significant question. One of my former colleagues and I wrote a piece for the C.D. Howe Institute, which says, okay, you've got these financial stability reviews. How do you get the private sector to pay attention? And that's a very significant kind of thing. Lots of people worried about different parts of this, although I don't think anyone thought it was going to be as bad as it was, even, well, maybe one or two. 
But, uh, and they've probably been saying it for 25 years. So, the, uh, But the question of, to come back to the point I made earlier, what the role of monetary policy say in dealing with asset price bubbles? If you think you're going to make 15 or 20 percent on your house or on your shares, is an increase in interest rates of a quarter or a half percent going to make any difference? That's the, that's the bluntness of the instrument. That's why we may have to go back to the kinds of instruments we turned our back on uh, 30 years ago. Uh, people have been asking me about uh, what used to be called moral suasion, where the central bank gave instructions. That's not going to work in today's world. But what may work are different kinds of regulatory arrangements. But that's a very tricky thing because these things have unintended consequences. And you have to be very, very careful. I just keep hoping. I mean, I, I know financial innovation may be a dirty word for you. For me, it's a positive. And I worry about the stifling of financial innovation, of gains like that. Uh, Sarbanes-Oxley is a very good example. The rush to bring in legislation had all sorts of consequences which were negative. So we have to be careful as we go forward. We have to do a lot. But we have to do it in a very sensible way. And that is a challenge. Well, we're going to have one more round of questions. and. Uh, Oh, I'm sorry. So, I'm sorry. No. No, forgive me. For, I'm so sorry. No, well, uh, let me just uh, focus on, I mean, uh, following on the capital account issue, I mean, uh, the, uh, the, the real point, uh, well, as Jomo just pointed out, is that the, there is no commitment to capital account liberalization in the IMF Articles of Agreement. But furthermore than that, I, I mean, in the, in the discussions on what are sensible ways to, uh, to uh, manage financial instability, I think there are some cases in which you can uh, argue, particularly for developing countries, that some forms of capital account regulation actually make sense. And they, and they should be promoted uh, internationally as, 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 in a sense, as a standard. For instance, you know, I, I, well, I have a strong feeling that, uh, I mean, the easiest of all is probably currency mismatches. Uh, it should somehow be, be uh, uh, forbidden uh, to a large extent in, uh, in the portfolios of so agents who cannot, who don't have a, a revenue in the foreign currency should not get in debt in foreign currencies. Uh, well, is that you know, one principle which applies to domestic financial instability uh, has been a source of crisis everywhere now in Central and Eastern Europe. The second is reserve requirements. If reserve requirements are good for banking, uh, for financial institutions, why are not good for countries? I don't understand that point. I mean, the, uh, so why don't you allow countries to put reserve requirements of capital inflows, which is the Chilean-based uh, regulation that has been used by other countries? Uh, and, and the third is minimum state periods. Uh, actually, a private practice, you know, go to a, a, any, uh, Fund and you know they will ask you to keep your money for some time uh, <laughs> uh, because otherwise you'll get a lower uh, some penalty. Now why don't allow, you allow countries to do the same yeah. and, allow, yeah. and establish minimum state periods uh, or or otherwise have penalties for withdrawing your capital? I mean those are for instance just three propose uh, three uh, specific uh, capital account regulations that I propose should be international standards. I, I mean, that, that would be my proposal. Anyway, uh, regional organizations, they are quite good. The, the Latin America initiatives are quite good. My only criticism uh, of the ALBA initiatives is I don't understand why they don't use the existing institutions, because the Latin America has actually the best network of institutions in the regional area. So I don't understand why they want to duplicate institutions. Anyway, 
Um, G20, well, I'll, I'll leave the G20. Uh, just one more thesis. I mean, since I am anti-G20 guy, clearly. <laughs> uh, let me just uh, point out that the only uh, country that meets the, uh, the UNA target of 0.7% of GDP, that is a member of the G20, uh, was self, you know, is one that pushed itself into, which is the Netherlands. There is no other country there uh, who meets the UN target. Okay? Okay? <laughs> I mean, I'm serious. I mean, I, I mean, the representation issues of the G20 are serious, uh, is a serious problem. Uh, and it's not going to be solved by, the, by ex except that you want to make it a, a G40, just by saying, oh, I have this problem, and then I, they include this country. So it's better to, to start all over and, and think seriously. So I'll, I'll mobilize the G170, the non-members of the G20, okay? <laughs> <laughs> Including my country. But no, but let me go on this. <laughs> but let me get really into the, uh, uh, into the, uh, the serious issue of the, uh, the uh, is there going to be a dollar crisis? Well, uh, it, it might, you know, there might be. And, I mean, uh, the, the real point is at what point the, the U.S. Uh, uh, interest rate policy uh, will be tied to the, uh, uh, to the exchange rate of the dollar. I mean, so far the, the U.S. has uh, correctly put, uh, I mean, the U.S. Fed says no intervention, et cetera, to, to stop the, the depreciation of the dollar. But there might be a point which, I mean, most countries of the world do procyclical policies because of you know of, of the fact that you know when they're you know the exchange rate uh, uh, depreciates, they might be forced to uh, to increase interest rates. Okay, uh, so the, the, I think that's a critical point. Now, what multilateral mechanism uh, could be used? Actually, the the IMF could be used. I mean, there's this idea of the substitution account, which was discussed uh, you know three decades ago. Uh, you know, Fred Burstyn actually has written a couple of op-eds exactly on, on why that would be a useful mechanism now, and, uh, and I think uh, he might be right. But on your point, uh, I mean, one, uh, actually, aside from the issues of, uh, 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 I mean, my way, I, you know, the papers I have written on, on, on the global reserve system, I always point out the, the, uh, the, the fact that the, uh, from the point of view of developing countries, it actually makes sense uh, to, to, uh, to be doing what they have been doing. Uh, that is, you know, if you are subject to procyclical capital flows, which is not true of industrial countries as far as I can see, but when you are subject to recurrent uh, strong procyclical flow, uh, shocks, the best way you can do is to intervene heavily in the booms to accumulate reserves in order to be able to manage the crisis. I think the basic reason why Developing countries have been, you know, on a large scale, been able to manage the current crisis. It's not because they have followed inflation targeting, not because they, have, you know, are fiscally austere. You know, some have not, uh, and it's because a large number of developing countries have lots of foreign exchange reserves. Now, of course, that makes sense for individual countries, but it's a fallacy of composition effect because it does contribute to global imbalances. Now, uh, so that this is a global issue. That's why it has to be uh, said. Because, you know, you cannot say oh, developing countries should allow their exchange rates to appreciate. Well, that recipe in the past has been a disaster for developing countries. All developing, I mean, when you look at the crisis of developing countries, uh, you, know, uh, you know, so many have been said capital account, boom, you let your exchange rate appreciate, you get, build a current account deficit, and then you go bust. 
when, the cap, you know, when the, you have a sudden stop in external <laughs> financing. So it really doesn't make sense to follow that rule. And, and I, I will furthermore say that in other cases you, you think it's irreasonable. I mean, look at the, even the Chinese uh, uh, accumulation of reserves and current account surplus. When did, it, you know, when did it increase substantially rapidly? During the boom uh, of the, you know, the, the 2004-2007 boom. Prior to that, there were surpluses, but not the huge amount that followed uh, after the boom. Uh, I, I think from the point of view of, of the, uh, let's say, of the uh, counter-cyclical management in China, it, it might have been sensible to, uh, uh, to do that um, uh, rather than, you know, spend more, uh, which is, you know, you know and you wonder what the spend more in China means when they're, you know, aggregate demand is expanded 10% per year. But anyway, uh, um, should they have allowed the exchange rate to appreciate? Well, maybe more, I agree. But at the same time, the, uh, you know, the, the member the issue that we're discussing in the, mid uh, uh, in the middle part of this decade was whether the, the Chinese financial system could go bust. So I, I think the appreciation of the uh, very rapid appreciation following a, f a flexible exchange rate may have led to a financial crisis in China. So I think there are many, many factors. But you know, I, I don't think, I, I, I understand that the Canadian Central Bank does not, it does, it lives happily with the floating exchange rate. Uh, more developing countries, and I am you know, economists by now, don't think that pure floating is good. And I think the practice is that most countries do not float cleanly their currencies. They actually intervene heavily. They intervene heavily in the booms to buy foreign exchange reserves. They intervene heavily in the, in the, in the downswing, uh, you, know, uh, uh, you know, using part of those exchange reserves. That's part of the stability that developing countries have won. Uh, you know, it's, it's suboptimal, but I think it's a great, great win for developing countries. So, so the, the, uh, the usual orthodox recipe is wrong. And that's why, actually, I am against inflation targeting for developing countries. Because for me, uh, there is no sensible you know, developing country macroeconomic management that does not involve a lot of exchange rate intervention. Uh, actually, to smooth uh, the, uh, and is the, is the essential reason is, is uh, you know, is capital account volatility and particularly procyclical capital flows. So you have procyclical capital flows, you have to intervene heavily. That's a distortion that Canada probably doesn't have. Uh, that's a, a problem that you know, many other industrial countries don't have. But that's a problem that most developing countries have. And I think it's quite sensible to intervene under those conditions. That's totally different to inflation targeting. It means that you have to do also, in a sense, some form of exchange rate targeting. And, and I think uh, that's part of the uh, additional gains in the stability that we have won. It's not called, you know, some countries continue to call it inflation targeting. For instance, the Peruvians, which are masters of intervention, in foreign exchange market, you know, and try to smooth the exchange rate through the business cycle. They they, they say they are doing inflation targeting. I don't understand, you know, what the, what is that inflation target? I'm going the Chileans, to, of course. The Chileans, no, Chileans also intervene heavily. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, wait, wait. the Chileans, the, the Chileans do intervene heavily. They intervene heavily in the foreign exchange market. They accumulate all their fiscal surpluses in foreign exchange. No, no, it is the same. Uh, and, 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 in, uh, and they have been intervening very heavily in the foreign exchange market uh, during the, uh, the appreciation uh, of the early part of 2008 
uh, and the depreciation uh, later on. They intervened very heavily in the foreign exchange market. But in any case. A no. very quick, quick, <laughs> quick last round of questions, starting with Bob Thompson over there, and, and you may now raise any question to all the panelists or anyone, or however you wish. Uh, Bob Thompson. Unless, just, just to rephrase it in a very quick way, how are we going to finance the transition from a, uh, a carbon economy within this macroeconomic context? Okay, next question. Uh, I'm Soren Ambrose with ActionAid International, and I want to pose a question to the two uh, members of the Stiglitz Commission um, to uh, do a political assessment of where things are going to move in the future with two of the most exciting proposals, I think. One being the global global reserve uh, policies that uh, uh, Mr. Campos has already discussed. Uh, what happens next? How do we make that proposal move forward? What can civil society do? What can academia do? Uh, how do we make that happen? And also on one that has not yet received discussion here, but got a lot of discussion in advance of the Pittsburgh some of the G20, namely the uh, financial transaction tax proposals, uh, whether you see those as uh, a good idea and ones that, uh, how do we move those forward if you do think they're a good idea? Thanks. Thank you. Another question? And maybe we can make this the last. Thanks. I'm, I'm John Sinclair. I wanted to go back briefly to the, uh, the Global Economic Council. Not because it's a, it's a worn-out subject, but because I have to talk about the G20 tomorrow, and I just want to make sure I don't have to rewrite it all tonight. What I wanted to do really was to say, my, why, what is the political environment? We've gone back to that before, but let's deal specifically with the new actors in the G20, the, the Chinese, the Indians, countries like that. Are they wanting to make the G20 work and to move towards incrementally the sorts of things you're talking about, which is what I would see as possible, or are they really wanting to walk out of it and go back into the UN system? I mean, where does that practical political debate take place nowadays? Because that seems to be at the heart of the issue. Um, and that would be the last question, except I would like to add one myself. <laughs> uh, and it, it's a little bit of a strange question, taking a little distance from this financial crisis. Um, and it goes back to the enormous pace of financialization of the capitalist economy, particularly in its western heartlands. Uh, the apparent disjuncture between the growth of finance and profits and returns of financial corporations from the real economy. I think something that Keynes feared very much he once, I think he feared that finance would destroy capitalism or any of its good aspects. And, and in these years, since the Clinton years and into the Bush years, there has been such a growth of inequality, particularly within the countries most intimately um, connected with the international financial and economic system. Um, we see in the United States the ability of the financial sector to hold to ransom the government, the central bank, for the big um, bailout and uh, loans and etc. And uh, to repeat that to some extent with regard to the health system, the insurance companies. Um, my question really is, is do, 
is the, that power of the financial industries, particularly in the United States and Britain, or to a lesser degree on the continent of Europe, who have benefited so greatly from the precise disorder and all the disequilibria that have been so well analyzed, uh, taking their influence on the positions of the governments of the G7, uh, realistically speaking, what is going to drive this program of reform, a very excellent and well thought out and, and logical program, but what are the political forces that are going to make it come about? Um, would you like to start, Jomo? Thank you, Chair. Uh, let me quickly go through the, the four uh, questions which have been raised. Um, at the United Nations, uh, we've just come out a couple of months ago with uh, something called the World Economic and Social Survey, uh, which is, uh, really deals with the question of climate change and development together. Um, we feel that the discussion in the past has, has seen, that has posed the issue in terms of climate change versus development, and, and we believe that a solution uh, to the climate change problem would, would would also uh, help to address the current crisis. As I mentioned earlier, there is a real problem of overinvestment and excess capacity. But one area where there, there isn't enough capacity is in, the quest, is in renewable energy investments. And we advocate creating a renewable energy infrastructure pathway, particularly in the poorest countries where public investments would basically shape the nature of complementary private investments. And this would obviously, obviously the poorest countries are not going to be able to afford these, these investments. And a global stimulus effort which involves a strong, um, which involves a big push in terms of front-loading investments uh, we argue would be very desirable. We also show that because of learning economies as well as, as scale economies, a strong initial push, which and this is where we differ from the World Bank's otherwise excellent uh, report, World Development Report for, for next year, and, 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 and also with the, the stern, stern recommendations. Uh, which, which basically envisage investments dealing with climate change steadily going up. We would argue that a big thrust right now would actually mean far less investments uh, in the medium to long term. Uh, so that, that is the, I, I would say it would take too long to try to get into all the details, but I'll simply refer you to that, to that document. Um, Soren's question refers to, to, to uh, the financial transactions tax. I think that's uh, that's uh, important. Um, I think the financial transactions tax discussion, which is going on right now, has to be differentiated from the from the old Tobin tax proposal. The financial transactions tax does not simply involve cross-border transactions. This would a, a financial transactions tax would basically can be basically envisaged as as uh, as more than 
more than FDIC type contributions in the United States, for instance. The financial transactions tax would also serve to, 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 to discourage various types of transactions, especially those which would have a more speculative character. So in that sense, it would serve a similar role as, as, as the, the Tobin tax, but it would not be limited to cross-border taxation. The cross-border element provide, suggested by Tobin um, would, well, in many of the discussions, would also be important and that would be, would be, can be envisaged as part of, but not necessarily only as part of a, a financial transactions tax, taxation. Um, the, as far as the developing countries are concerned, I mean, you, you basically have a situation where when you have these exclusive clubs, whether it's G7 or G20 or L21, everybody, everybody who gets in feels privileged about being in. Okay? So there, there is an element in which I think it will be very difficult to imagine those who have gotten in or think they are going to have, have a remote chance of getting in, or not necessarily a remote chance, a good chance of getting in, uh, that, that these are going to be the, the principal agents of reform. I don't see an early situation before an alternative is set up that there would be mass defection. I, I, nonetheless, I think it was very clear in Istanbul that, that there is growing solidarity among the developing country members of the G20, and, they, and the, the IMFC meeting was basically the developing country members of G20 speaking in a very, very complimentary fashion, um, supporting each other, and the Europeans, on the other hand, speaking likewise. Um, and, and basically, um, the fault line as far as the question of governance of the Bretton Woods institutions is, is very clear along there. On other issues, the, the, the dividing lines are, di are different. Uh, but but I, I, I think uh, there is growing solidarity, at least on the question of Bretton Woods governance issues. It's not clear whether this will be extended to other matters, but I, 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 I do think that this will be extended to other matters. Now, given this sense that they are a minority caucus within the G20, uh, it's, and given that the way that Pittsburgh besides the question of institutionalization and a couple of small issues, really didn't add very much. Okay. Um, I, I, think, I think it will just be a matter of time before the developing countries seriously assess uh, what, what, is, what is on offer. At the same time, I think it is also very clear, judging by what happened with the June conference in, in, in New York, for example, that there are a variety of forces which, are con which will conspire to continue to undermine the United Nations as providing uh, an alternative. So it's not going to be a, uh, it's not going to be easy. So I think your your, your lecture for tomorrow is probably uh, you don't have to work on it tonight. Uh, f finally, on Kerry's question, the, uh, Jerry Epstein and others have done a lot of work showing that financial rents have actually gone up very significantly over the last four decades, that this has exacerbated inequality. There's also some interesting work at UN WIDER 
with people like Ed Wolf at New York University involved in it, which have basically shown a greater gr development of wealth inequality. Mm -hmm. However, to, to associate that wealth inequality specifically with financialization is, is quite difficult. Their methodology does not allow them to do so. But it is very, very clear, for example, that although the financial sector announced uh, uh, accounts for 12 percent of the of 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 uh, of, uh, of GDP. It accounts for 20 percent, uh, uh, no. including real estate mortgage. 20 percent is in the United States. Okay, it accounts for it uh, before the crisis in 2007. It accounted for 40 percent of profits. Yeah. Uh, so so obviously that within the this, within this, if we think of the functional distribution of income, and if you think of profits. Uh, obviously, there is a significant redistribution of, of profit, profits. Mm -hmm. And, and I, one of the unfortunate uh, aspects of the, of the initiatives of the Obama administration was not to seize this opportunity uh, uh, provided by the crisis and, and the need for rescue packages to, to try to bring about a, a, a rebalancing of, of, of capital uh, in, in, in the United States. This could could quite easily have been done, uh, as Willem Buiter has suggested. Uh, there is a strong case to be made for a nationalized core of a financial of a financial sector, uh, which would, uh, on the one hand, uh, manage interest rates in the best interest of the real economy, uh, but would also um, such a nationalized core would would basically deter some of the kinds of of excesses which have contributed uh, to this crisis. And, and uh, there are a whole range of reasons why this would be also desirable for developing countries, uh, which the G24 uh, has been talking about. And I think this is something to be, uh, which is useful for us to, to think about going forward. Thank, Thank you. Thank you, Jerman. Yeah, no, just, uh, um, let me just make, uh, you know, some final remarks on uh, on the G20. Uh, I mean, just to uh, uh, I I I do think that the um, uh, the uh, you know the, the the expansion, let's say, of uh, of the G7 to the G20 uh, uh, was, uh, in any case, a good idea. Um, so I, I'm I'm not against that, uh, but I want to uh, what I want to. I, I mean, the, the real issue here uh, in practice is whether the, the non-G7, uh, because I imagine that Russia would not be uh, uh, necessarily uh, an ally of the G7, uh, uh, or doesn't seem to be in any, in any case, uh, will take uh, and, and will push the process and, and we'll see whether that process in, under those conditions uh, goes in different uh, directions. Uh, so we have to see the, still the, whether the dynamics of the non-G7 within the G20 uh, or the L21 will, will lead uh, uh, to new solutions. But you know, I, you know, regardless of that, I, I do think that the uh, uh, that of course the uh, uh, the the, uh, the idea of, of a legitimate uh, you know G20 uh, is the, the best one. So I you know. So I, I invite the Halifax Initiative to lead the, you know, the, you know, with this uh, for the legitimate G20, as as a as a great you know international social mobilization, um, as as well as I, know, I have another one you know which is uh, Keynes uh, 
uh, all idea, you know, let all finance be national. Uh, I think yes, the, <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Uh, let finance be national. I, I do think that the, that the, um, uh, uh, that the, um, you know, at the end of the day, when finance was national, with uh, we may have had you know some crisis. Uh, we, we may have had some problems, but we didn't have crisis, financial crisis. So the uh, uh, so it will be interesting to see what you know the uh, um, a different arrangement will will emerge. Uh, but I I do think that the uh, uh, that in in many ways uh, we have to retreat from certain forms of of financial globalization that were extremely harmful, uh, as well as financial liberalization. So I think the financial liberalization, I see the, uh, the process going on, going on uh, you know, quite well with the uh, discussions on uh, strengthening regulation. But, you know, but we also need uh, some other forms. You know, at the end of the day, so long as we don't have you know, a, a true uh, world government, uh, those who are going to be responsible for the uh, financial rescue packages are going to be national governments with their taxpayers behind them. Uh, and in some cases, it's quite controversial whether. I will not take an you know, example from the developing country, but actually I sat in a fascinating meeting with the president of Iceland um, uh, uh, to see to understand, uh, and, and to understand the problems. And, and actually, you know, one of the things that he presents is that, you know, the problem, as he sees it, uh, is that, you know, the, the rules of the, of, the, uh, of the common market uh, to which, uh, in that regard, they belong, um, in, in a sense, uh, it, it allows, you know, financial institutions in Iceland to provide services anywhere in the European Union and vice versa. Now, that world, so long as we don't have, you know, a, you know, a clarity about international responsibility for financial crisis, which we don't and we will not have in the future, you know, means that at the end our national governments uh, are, you know, so the proposal by, by Turner, for instance, that, you know, the size of the financial sector has to be, uh, you know, in, a, in some way related uh, to the uh, fiscal backing uh, of the uh, government that at the end are going to be responsible for the losses, I, I think is, a, is an interesting proposal, which again means that in some way finance has to be, be national again. Uh, so that the, uh, we, and, and certainly, you know, in our proposal that host country regulation should prevail uh, over any other regulation uh, in the financial area is one way of saying that, you know, let finance be national again. Just a couple of points. Um, assumption that host regulation is going to be better, which may well be correct, is not self-evident, though. It a lot depends on what countries are capable of doing. Uh, good regulation has occurred in a lot of countries. Uh, I happen to have been one of the people who argued against allowing foreign banks to come into Canada as branches, I lost that debate uh, for a variety of reasons, which I won't go into. Uh, no, but I thought we had a very good system. But then the pressure to bring in branches obviously overwhelmed, uh, took, took precedence. Uh, so I think I'm very sympathetic to some of that. That said, uh, there are efficiency issues. If you talk to financial institutions, they will tell you that running a subsidiary is a much more expensive proposition than running a branch. So you've got to trade that off as well. 
I want to come back to something though, Carrie's comment, which is a very interesting one. I have not really, now maybe I've missed it, but I've not really seen a very good explanation of how financial sectors have managed to keep up their rate of return. I once was talking to a, a CEO of a bank who happens to have been, econo have been an economist by training. I said, how can you, this is after inflation came down and the rates of return came down in other segments of the economy. I said, how is it that you can continue to expect double-digit rates of return in the financial sector, in the bank. He says, I say, you know, once inflation's down, it doesn't make any sense. He says, look, you know that and I know that, but my board doesn't know that. Which I thought was kind of an interesting problem. <laughs> but there, it's, it, there's, it's a little more complicated than that. First of all, there's high rates of return. And again, I'd like, you know, I'd be very interested in analysis of exactly how they've managed to do that. But there's the, where does it get divided up? I, I referred a bit to the fact that you've got a lot of the uh, return to, in the financial institution, has gone to the workers in that, if you like. The, uh, the uh, you know, you, you read about these multi-million dollar bonuses and so on. And this is part of what we've seen through the economy as a whole, the star, what I call the star uh, re responses to star, remuneration of stars. It's true in hockey, it's true in baseball, it's true in a lot of areas, that the, there's been a tremendous widening between what the star gets and what the ordinary player gets, which again raises some very interesting issues. But I'm convinced in my mind there may be a few stars in the financial institution, but a lot of them are making a lot of money because they're using very large amounts of capital supplied by shareholders who are not getting the rate of return. So um, th these are kind of still very fascinating issues which require careful analysis. I'm a bit worried about nationalization. State-owned banks do not have a great reputation. There are advantages of having international banks because a lot of the domestic banks pick up some of the techniques and so on. Uh, I have banked in three countries that I've lived in and I've seen banking in others. And you know what? Canada's got one of the best banking systems from the point of view of how easy it is for the depositor to access funds and so on of anywhere. Um, a lot of countries can learn from us. And uh, they do actually. And of course, it's worked out very well for countries in the Caribbean who have Canadian banks. So I, I, national banks, yeah, but you're giving something up as well. So uh, including, and ultimately at the end of the day, it was fascinating to me is in the countries that we've been excoriating, this, the premium between deposit and loan rates are far lower. When I was in Moscow, uh, at doing some work at the, state, at the uh, Bank of Russia, we were talking about, as some of you may know, we have a system in Canada where we have a spread between the deposit rate of the central bank and the, the one overnight deposit rate, the overnight loan rate of 50 basis points, very narrow. And I opened up my newspaper, sorry, it wasn't Russia, it was Ukraine, my apologies, when I was in Kiev. And it said overnight rates ranged from 6% to 16%, and I kind of, ooh, you know, 10%. The efficiency of banking systems in many developing countries has a long, long way to go, and I think there is a role for uh, developing country, developed countries to do something there. The problem with, of course, Eastern Europe is they have fixed exchange rates, which I think is a disaster. But that's another thing. Well, I, uh, much as I would love to engage in this discussion, <laughs> I know that I'm not permitted to do that. So we are now come to the end. I think of a wonderful evening, and I want to thank all of three panelists and the audience who has been so faithful and hasn't gone away, even though maybe people may be hungry. And I want to extend a special thanks to Jomo, because he has come... He has going to get up at 4 o'clock in the morning to make a meeting in, is it New York or Washington, wherever it is at 9 tomorrow morning. And I think it really deserves a, a special thanks. And the same thanks to everybody. <laughs>